0: You can be seated now. I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, in your New Testament, as we look at the Gospel of the empty tomb. I love the way Philip Keller described what happened that day. He says, no man's hands unwrapped the heavy spices around him. No man's hands unwound those windings that bound him. No man's hands removed the bindings about his face. No man's hands loosed him and let him go. No man's hands rolled away the rock door. No man's hands broke the seal upon the tomb. No man's hands struck the guards to the ground outside. This was only and all the work of God himself. He simply was not there. He was risen. God the Father, in his sovereign plan, chose, as we sang already, to conquer death as he laid his only son, Jesus Christ, in his tomb for three days, and then he rose again. We're gonna pick up the story in, in John chapter 20, but just to give you a little bit of a preface to this, we have the Jesus is arrested, that mock trial where the phony charges are brought up against him. He is beaten, he's scourged, he is crucified on the cross, laid in this borrowed grave for three days. There's an earthquake, an angel opens the tomb, the temple guards there, the, the guards around the tomb are, are like lifeless, and a group of women come to, while it's still dark, to see what's going on. And we pick up the story there in John chapter 20. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. While it was still dark, she saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb, the two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. And stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then, following him, Simon Peter came also, and he entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrappings that had been on his head were not lined with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, then entered the tomb, saw And believed, for they still did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Of this issue of the resurrection, Timothy Keller said this. He said, if Jesus rose from the dead, if he rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. I like that. If the resurrection really happened then you have to accept everything that Jesus said. He goes on to say, if he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Folks, the resurrection is the the cornerstone of our faith, that Jesus Christ said he would die and be raised again on the third day, and he fulfilled that. And if he did, and we know he did, then we have to take him at his word. Everything else he said has, has bearing on our lives. If you don't accept the resurrection, you don't have to accept any of this. I love this story. I love how Mary goes to the tomb and she runs to Simon Peter and then, and then Simon Peter runs back and John, the other disciple who's, who wrote the Gospel of John, he refers to himself as the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, he runs, too. And everybody's running everywhere. I, I was thinking about uh, this story, how the excitement's there. When Kelly and I were in Bangkok uh, a few years ago trying to make a connecting flight to go see our daughter in, in Chiang Mai. I think that was a connection. And we got off our plane. We were running late. And a little polite Thai uh, flight attendant or, or, or a person there on the, with the airline said, follow me, this little gal. so Because she knew we were late. Oh, they're going to help us make our connecting flight. This gal took off. I have never, I'm telling you, she was walking. She never broke stride, she walked every time. Kelly and I were both running through the airport. We ran, that has to be the longest airport I've ever been. Has anybody been through that airport? We wound and wound and wound and wound and wound. Finally got there, running, huffing and puffing. Our backs hurt, our knees hurt, just to get to catch our flight. That's the story here. We have them running, running here, running there, running back and forth. They're excited about what had happened. And it's interesting that Mary's the one that goes to the tomb and finds that he's not there and announces it to the the other disciples there. Someone said recently that that we shouldn't put a period where God puts a comma. The grave is is a period, but God put a comma there because as we've said, he is not here, he is risen. It's the good news, it's the gospel. There's excitement as they run back and forth from the tomb to one another. So let's look at several people in this text and see the way they respond to the empty tomb, and I think we can see ourselves in in the, the, the story of these folks. Number one, some people respond to the empty tomb with simple acceptance, with simple acceptance. Look at verse eight, John writes about himself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first, then entered the tomb, saw and believed. The first record of one of the disciples actually believing that this was the resurrection. That this is what Christ had said he would do. He didn't need much evidence. All he needed to know was the tomb was empty. The grave clothes were there. Someone said John was not quick on his feet, but he was quick to believe. Uh, he got there and saw that Jesus was gone. Mary's assumption is they've taken his body. Someone has stolen him. John recognizes this is exactly what happened. He believed. That might be where you are. You might be one of those people where the first time you heard the gospel, you simply by faith said, yes, Lord, I believe and I receive it. Uh, That may be where you are today. Maybe this is the first time all these dots are being connected and you're saying, yes, we've been singing about it. We just read it in the text. Jesus rose from the grave and I need to accept that fact. And you're one of those people who who accepts things right, right like that at face value simply. John was that kind of person. We had a man walk in our Easter Sunday morning service a few years ago. I think the choir was rehearsing before the service and you heard the choir and that man walked the aisle at the end of the service and said, you know, God had me from the moment I walked in the door and heard the music. God completely convinced me that I needed to give my life to Christ right away. You might be like that guy. And you heard the gospel and you received it simply by faith. I was thinking about my kids as I was preparing this, uh, people coming to Christ. And my son Cameron is one of those just matter of fact people. And uh, when he was about five years old, he had thought about it, and when he decided he was ready, he was ready. He said, Dad, I'm going to do this thing. Well, tell me, son. When he talked about how he knew Jesus died for him and that he was a sinner. He said, I'm ready to do this. I believe it. Let's go. And so I said, well, don't you want to wait till your mom gets home so we can do this? No, I'm ready to do it right now, Dad. He was just, matter of fact, simply accepting the gospel. All his questions had been answered, and he was ready to do it. That might, might be you. I love that the, Jesus told the disciples, let the children come to me, and then he said that, that coming to Christ should be like a child in innocence, accepting the simple message of the gospel that may be you. If you're here today and it's the first time you've heard and you're ready to accept it, we're going to give you an opportunity at the end of the service to make a commitment of your life to Christ. The second response here is, is that some people respond to the empty tomb with a wavering faith. A wavering faith. That's a, a faith that, that has some, some dots to connect. I, I believe, yet I'm not quite sure that I've got, got all of the understanding that I need. And it's pictured here in Peter. Look at verse 3. When Mary comes and says they've taken him, at that, Peter and the other disciple went out, headed to the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. John kind of puts that in there. I'm faster than Peter, right? And got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloth lying there, yet he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter came and entered the tomb, and, and he saw the linen cloth lying there and the wrapping that was there. Skip on down to, to, uh, to verse 9. They still did not understand. I believe that's speaking of Peter there. John accepts it, but Peter and the other disciples still did not understand. So what someone said, Peter, I, I love this, John gets to the tomb first, it's almost like Peter finally gets there, pushes John out of the way, let me see. I need to see some more evidence here. John sees it, John's ready to go. Man, Jesus is alive, he rose from the grave and Peter's checking out. And someone said, Peter left the empty tomb scratching his head. Did this really happen? Did it really unfold the way Jesus said it was gonna unfold? I can't imagine, well I can't imagine Peter, probably as he's seeing this, trying to process everything he's been through for the last few days, Having Jesus tell him, you're going to deny me before the rooster crows, and Peter says, I'll never do that, Lord, never, never, never. And what did he do? He denied him three times that the rooster crowed and reminded him that he promised Jesus he'd never leave him, but he forsook him. And now he sees this empty tomb, and I'm sure all of that's going through his mind. He's trying to process and put all of this together. He's insecure. He's struggling. He's wavering. He sees the evidence, but he still doesn't quite completely believe Maybe that's you, you've seen the evidence, you've heard this, you've witnessed it in people's lives, you've, you've read the Bible, you've heard the gospel, maybe repeated times and still the, the dots haven't been completely connected with you. That's okay, keep, keep trying to connect the dots, keep asking God to show you how this all fits together. You may have seen God transform the life of your family. My, my own testimony is that I came to know Jesus Christ, I grew up in a Christian home, very marginal faith in my family. We, we just kind of went to church on Sunday mornings. It really wasn't that big of a deal. When I got to be a teenager, we quit going to church. Um, just my parents gave up and uh, I saw them then come to a renewing of their faith in Christ and I watched a transformation in their life and I saw that and I started to say there's something real about what just happened to my mom and dad. I don't have that. I don't have that genuine faith so I saw all that and I was trying to put the pieces together. Maybe that's where you are. Maybe it's a, for you, it's still a puzzle. Our family likes to put together puzzles in, at the holidays. That's the only time we do it. I don't know why, but we get out the puzzles. And we'll start a, a puzzle on the dining room table, usually on a coffee table, and get it going. And we always start with the border, you know, get the four corners and then the edges, right? That's the way we do a puzzle. And then I sit down there for maybe 15 or 20 minutes. And if it's a thousand piece puzzle, that's not very many pieces and I get up and walk away, and my family stays at it. And I just, I walk by every once in a while, and I, I look for a piece, and I put it in, and then I leave. I'm that guy. You know, those of you that say, why don't you just stay here and help us? I don't do that. I just walk in every once in a while. And it's irritating for the puzzle putter togethers because, because all I do is walk by and find one. Well, but I do show up when there's about 10 or 15 pieces left on a 500,000 piece puzzle and I say, okay, I'm, I'm ready to sit down and I help them find those 10 pieces and I put it all together so I, I can say I did the puzzle. <laughs> I'm that guy. There are people who look at, look at life and look at the, the gospel as something that needs to fit together and you want it to fit together but it hasn't fit together yet. It'll fit together. I, I firmly believe the Bible's clear that God's the one who's calling you to himself and if you seek him, the Bible says you will find him so if you're still struggling, maybe you're a skeptic, maybe you're, maybe you're that person who's not really sure, keep seeking him and he'll help put the puzzle together for you. You can just step back and watch the pieces come together. There's a man in my first church who came, his wife came. This describes a lot of folks in church. Uh, the wife comes, the husband didn't come. She was a believer. She said, pray for my husband. We prayed for him. I went to see him, found out right away that he, is, he was a pretty borderline atheist, but at least a skeptic didn't believe. And he saw this activity in the, the life of his wife. And so he sees this piece in the puzzle. And then he meets some of us from the church and he starts to get to know us. And then he sees that we're genuine and almost normal. And so, yeah, almost. The Bible says we're a peculiar people. I guess he probably would have said that was us. And so he started to see the pieces fit together. And finally, ultimately, he gave his life to Christ. It took a while And we waited on him. We loved him. If that's you, hang in there. If you have somebody in your family who who really is wanting to, but they haven't gotten there yet, love them. Encourage them. Pray for them. Let them put the pieces together. Let God put the pieces together for them. Some people respond to the gospel with a wavering faith like Peter's. I love what Charles Coulson says about the the issue of the resurrection and, and the reality of it. Let me read you what he wrote. He was one of the Watergate conspirators. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed the truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. That's true. You think about that. If these disciples, even these women who followed Christ, made this up and this was a lie, they never would have given their lives for it. He goes on to say this, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. I like that. What he's saying is the reality of the resurrection, the gospel shows the proof that these people would lay down their lives, that they would give their lives for a message that they saw was true. Peter finally connected the dots. I love how Peter ultimately, when Jesus appeared to the disciples in Mark, Jesus says, go tell the disciples and Peter that I'm here. It's almost like Jesus is saying, saying, Peter, it's okay. It's okay. I've got you. I forgive you. Some respond with wavering faith. I've watched folks after Hurricane Harvey, and we've been in conversation with them, and I've just watched folks soften, and folks begin to see how really and truly there is reality to the love of God and the love of Jesus Christ manifested through his people, the body of Christ. Folks with doubts, folks with confusion, folks who don't see how it all fit together. I've watched God begin to put that together and remove the doubts. If that's you, he will keep working. Number three, some people respond to the empty tomb with brokenness, with brokenness. Look with me at verse 11. Mary, but Mary, stood outside and facing the tomb, crying. As she was crying, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting there and one at the head and one at the feet where Jesus' body had been lying. Mary is at the tomb, grieving, broken. They said to her, woman, why are you crying? Verse 13, because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they put him. Mary comes in grief and in brokenness. She's disheartened. She's confused. She's, she's broken. Mary's experienced, Mary Magdalene with the demons and ultimately at the cross and and anointing Jesus with the spices and now here she is at the tomb and she sees the body's missing and she can't quite understand and she's broken someone said she's not going back to the tomb to see she's just going back to the tomb to grieve some people come to Christ through brokenness again I was talking about my kids a minute ago when our daughter Carissa came to Christ she was about five years old And Kelly and I both prayed for both our kids. God, give us as parents wisdom to know when our kids are ready to make a commitment. Because I've learned this in all these years. You can talk a kid into anything. You know, you can say stuff like, you want to go to heaven, don't you? You want to love Jesus, don't you? Boy, you can lead them right up to it. I don't want to do that. I didn't do that with my kids. We left it up to them. We were reading a devotional book one night with the, the colored picture book, and there's a picture of Jesus uh, resurrected out of the empty tomb, and we started talking about Easter, talking about the resurrection. She had already seen a, an Easter pageant where she saw the crucifixion played out. So as we're praying with her and talking with her about this story, she just starts weeping. And this little five-year-old girl is broken because she connected the dots that not only did Jesus die on the cross, but he died on the cross because of her sins, It was powerful. It was a powerful moment. She recognized that her sins sent Christ to the cross, and she wept. An acknowledgment of sin. Everybody has to come there in brokenness. I I told the story earlier about the the little girl at a vacation Bible school. We were teaching the gospel. I always make sure children understand what sin is and that that they acknowledge they've sinned. I always ask them, who is Jesus? What did he do for you? Uh, What is sin? Have you ever sinned? We always go through that. So I asked this little girl. She got it right. Jesus is God's one and only son. He died on the cross for us. What is sin? It's doing bad things. Have you ever sinned? And she just went like this. No, but my sister has. (laughs) She acknowledged what sin was, but she wasn't willing to acknowledge that it it was her sin that brought Christ to the cross. Listen, folks, that ought to be a powerful moment for you If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, to recognize that He gave His life because you sinned. And I love that Jesus meets us personally in our confusion. Look at number four. All who respond in faith will encounter Jesus personally. All who respond in faith will encounter Him personally. Look at verse verse 12 again. We'll, We'll read on. She saw the two angels sitting there, and one at the head and one at the feet. Where is the body, where the body had been lying? And they said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them. And I don't know where they put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. Though she did not know it was Jesus. Maybe in her grief, I can imagine her weeping, not even recognizing him. Maybe Jesus didn't reveal himself to her, I'm not sure, but she did not know it was Jesus. Verse 15, woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? The way he said that, it wasn't a derogatory term, woman, it it was a very gracious, respectful term, woman. Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you've removed him, tell me where you've put him and I will take him away. She still doesn't know it's him, but I love verse 16. Jesus said, Mary, Mary. Just spoke her name. And turning around, she said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And she told them what he'd said to her. Jesus met her personally. All who respond in faith will encounter Jesus personally personally he calls her by name he calls her out of her grief it's a it's a personal experience a personal encounter with him Peter Kreef said it this way the answer is not a bunch of words it's the word it's not a tightly woven philosophical argument it is a person it is the person it is someone not just something our faith is not based in just the facts of an empty tomb but the fact that there's a person of Jesus Christ that we can have a relationship with when my mom was dying of cancer, I went to the hospital, and, and uh, it was a long process, and we finally said goodbye to her, and she finally went to be with Jesus, and I, I walked out, just wanted some space by myself, and I was walking outside uh, on the, the side of the hospital, and it's in the, it was in the mountains, and I looked up, and there's this incredible sunset, and, and I just sensed God saying, Kevin, I did that, I've got this. I was weeping, God, I don't understand. My mom's young, why she, she was young, why is she gone? What am I going to do? And, and I didn't hear any audible words, but I saw this sun, sunset. And it's as if God was saying, if I can do that, I can get you through this grief. I looked at the sunrise. I wasn't actually at the sunrise. It was already up this morning. <laughs> but as I was coming in, the sun over the bay was incredible. It's like God said, Kevin, I, I did that. And I said, thank you, Lord. He said, I, I did that. I'm, I'm God. I'm creator. I've got this. I've got you. A personal relationship with christ brings you to that point where you see it's not just about his creation it's not just about the things he did but it's about him we're not asking you if you don't know christ as savior to join a church or to make a decision where you fill out a card or to to be a a part of anything we're asking to come to christ and have a relationship with him first and foremost it's not about religion it's about relationship when i was younger i was a uh, I, I, I call myself a salesman. I, wasn't, I was an order taker. You know the difference? <laughs> I just answered the phone, and when people ordered stuff, I would, I, would, I would take the order. And I sold pipe, casing, and tubing. And I had a, a group of clients over the state of Texas that I did business with, and I, I took orders for them. And one day my boss says, Kevin, we're going to go on a road trip and meet all of these folks. And I thought, great. I get to get out of the office and get paid for it. I was excited. I was excited until I found out in his Grand Torino, he had an eight-track Player. And did you know that shows you how old I am? That tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree has been recorded by a whole bunch of people. And I think he had every eight track tape of every singer. I got so tired of that song. Get me out of this car. <laughs> so on that road trip, he took me to different places all over the state of Texas, little towns mostly, and I got to meet people who I'd been talking to on the phone. I got to go to businesses and encounter with the folks that I'd been selling to, and, and it would just open up a new world for me. And I went home with a relationship with those people that I didn't have when I talked to them on the phone. It was different. When the phone rang and I saw it was this guy, I knew what he looked like, and I could say, hey, how's it going? It's not enough to know about Jesus It's not enough to just be like me talking to him on the phone. You need to see him face to face and have a personal encounter with him. You may have been around church all your life and heard the stories and maybe you believe intellectually that Jesus died for you and rose again and he wants you to go to heaven, but you've never personally, by faith, trusted him as your Savior. He wants you to do that. Let me just wrap up with this last truth here. It's from verse 31. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves us. The empty tomb is what happened to demonstrate it, but the key is the gospel. Verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing in his name, by believing, you may have life in his name. Here's the reason we have the account of the empty tomb. Here's the reason we have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Here's the reason we have this story told, so that we may believe in his name and have a relationship with him. The Bible says in Romans 1.16, Paul wrote, for I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The Gospel is salvation. Ephesians chapter 4 gives a great picture of this Gospel, and I'd like us to look at that today. I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 2. I did that earlier also. Ephesians chapter two, verse four. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah or Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses, that's our sins, you are saved by grace. Together with Christ Jesus, he also raised us up and seated us in the heavens, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That's talking about heaven, Look at verse eight, for you are saved by grace through faith. It's not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. I'm going to take just the the word gospel and, and give you some key elements of the gospel by using these letters. First letter is G. It reminds me of God's character, when I think about the gospel, it's, the central point is God's character. I, I need to take into mind the full character of God. We talk all the time here about God's grace and God's love and God's mercy and God's compassion. But we can't miss the fact that God is a judge who must judge sin. He cannot take sin lightly. Everything that's wrong has to be accounted for. And so if he's going to be a, a merciful God, he also has to deal with sin. And he can't let the guilty go unpunished. There's a YouTube uh, I guess it's a series of a judge, really nice guy, and they bring different people into his court, and it's, it's usually minor offenses, stuff that people have done, traffic stuff, um, just petty stuff, and, and he listens to their story, and he lets them off, almost every one of them. It's always, and, and, and it's really fun to watch these people get excited that they got let off from their, their, their guilt and their offense, but I thought, that's really not much of a judge, is it? If everybody that comes to him, he says, you're fine, go ahead. No problem, there's no fine, there's no fee, there's no jail time, you're all right. See, we don't have a God like that. We have a God who is a right, fair judge. So God's character, when I think about the gospel, not only is he loving and merciful, but he's right and has to judge sin. The letter O, offense. We have to think of the offense of sin. He says in verse five there, he made us alive through the Messiah, even though we were dead in our trespasses or dead in our sin. Man's sinfulness is a critical part of the gospel. Go back to Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Sin entered into the human race, and we've all fallen into that. My sinfulness separates me from God. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and falls short of the glory of God. The Bible says, your sins have separated you from God. In our house, we're, well, in our house, we're in a, a, a borrowed apartment right now. Well, we're waiting on our house to get finished, and we're getting closer. Two weeks—have y'all heard that? <laughs> two weeks, but we really maybe we're getting pretty close. So Kelly is finally starting to accumulate things. We have rugs laying here and boxes of stuff. We'll run us up place to put stuff. So on the, the counter where we eat, we have all kinds of boxes and candlesticks. And she found a couple of lamps last week, so now we have two lamps on this counter. Well, that's where we eat supper. So last night we're eating supper and I'm sitting across from her and I can't even see her. There's so much stuff on the counter and I'm looking between lamps and I'm thinking, these lamps are a barrier to our communication here. This isn't working, but we'll be out of that pretty soon. That's a great picture of what sin does. Sin, if you're in a relationship with someone and there's an offense, it separates you. It it blocks the relationship. Think about your relationship with God. God. When sin is in your life, you have a holy father who can't look on sin, and your sin separates you from him. It's a barrier. God's character, he's holy and just and loving. The offense of sin separates me from God. S is a sufficiency of Christ. Sufficiency of Christ. A lot of times we leave this out of the gospel. Verse 5 again says that he is the Messiah, the Christ, who made us alive. We're saved by grace. Verse six, together with Christ Jesus, who also raised us up. He is the one who makes salvation possible. Christ Jesus is sufficient to forgive us of all our sins by his act on the cross. Listen, he is the answer. He's not an answer, he's the answer. If you think, well, I'll add Jesus, this is one of the things we, one of the issues we have when we share Christ in other cultures especially in, in Thailand where there's Buddhists, they're so polite, they'll just add Jesus to all their other, all their other gods. Oh yeah, I believe Jesus is God. I'll add him to my, to my other ways to get to heaven. He's the way. He's not one of them. There are people that say, well, Jesus is only one of the ways. No, the Bible's clear. His sacrifice was sufficient to answer your sin. Nothing needs to be added to what he did at the cross. You can't add anything to it. By the way, if you try to add anything to it, it's not grace, Jesus plus anything is not grace. And Ephesians 2 says, it is by grace we're saved. P, personal response, personal response. You're saved by grace, verse 5 says. Verse 8 says this, you are saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves. It is God's gift, not from work so that no one can boast. Listen, God has clearly placed my, be the responsibility of receiving the gift of eternal life on me. He says, you must respond to that. After the hurricane, people from all over the country have been coming to help us. Pastors and, and, and ministers in our denomination have come down here. Ministers from other groups have come, and they've just come to love on us and pray with us. And one of the guys came down, he's with our state convention, and handed me an envelope with some money in it, either gift cards or money. And it's quite a bit. And in that, he read a note. He said, Kevin, my wife and I just went through some floods a few years ago, and we know exactly what you're going through, and we want to give you this gift, and we're praying for you. Man, that was awesome. You know what I did with that gift? I thanked him, and I took it. Would have been pretty rude if I have taken that envelope and sealed it back up and wrote a note on there. Uh, dear Mitch, thanks so much for thinking of me, but no thanks. Here it is. He'd be offended, wouldn't he? That he thought about me. That he had compassion on me and Kelly, that he knew what we'd been through. He knew exactly what our predicament was, and he gave something to help us out of that predicament. And it would have been rude for us to say, I don't need that. No thanks. Think about the gospel God knows our predicament, He knows where we are, He knows what's going on in our life, and He is remedying it by sending His only Son to die on the cross for us, and He offers that gift of salvation. I have to personally respond to that. E is for eternal urgency. He mentions in verse 7, the coming ages. Think about eternity, heaven or hell. We speak a lot about heaven. The Bible speaks a lot about hell also, that I am going to spend eternity somewhere. I've done a funeral for two people in the last few weeks, last, last month, and both of them, their testimony was that they knew Jesus Christ as personal Savior, and we got to stand up here and say they are with Jesus now. Folks, if they hadn't, they would die without God, separated from Him for eternity. There's an urgency to tell people that there is going to be a day. The Bible says every man it's appointed for every man who wants to die, and after that, the judgment. Every one of us are going to die if we if Jesus doesn't come back before we die. Every one of us are going to experience that. It's there's an urgency. I told a story at one of the memorial services recently about the pastor in a church who was trying to convince his congregation that that there's, there's going to be an accounting where we have to stand before God. And he said, every member of this church is going to die someday. And this little boy in the front row laughed. And the pastor thought, well, maybe I didn't make that point strong enough. Every member of this church is going to die someday. And the little boy laughed again. And so the pastor just stopped and said, son, what's so funny? He said, I'm not a member of this church. I need Dennis on the drums for that one. (laughs) Folks, there's this urgency that every one of us one day is going to die and stand before God. That's what drives us to share the gospel. And L is life transformation. There should be a transformation. The Bible speaks in verse 10 that we're created for good works. It means that once I receive Christ as Savior, I am to obey him and walk. The result of receiving Christ is a changed life. Do you have that? Can you look at your life and say, there was a time where I trusted Christ as my savior and the evidence is that I have a changed life. My life has been transformed. If you don't, you need to check your experience. You need to go back and say, if I live my life the same way as I did before I said I trusted Jesus, what's changed? Let me just close with this. Taking into account everything we said about the gospel. Think about this as your life right here. And think about this cell phone as the record book of your life everything you've ever done everything you've ever said especially the wrong that you've done is recorded on this cell phone and it's in your life and there you are weighed down by your sin and up here we've already talked about the character character of god haven't we that he's a holy God, he's a just God, and he has to deal with that sin before you can have a relationship with him because our sin separates us from a holy God. The Bible is so clear about this, that God the Father, the Bible says this in Romans 5, that that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love for us this way. The Bible says that this holy God, merciful, loving, just God, came in the person of Jesus Christ The Bible says, that's the demonstration of his love for me. The Bible says, all of my sin on Jesus was laid. Now, there's an openness. There's cleansing. There's forgiveness. My sin has been dealt with at the cross. And my response is to say yes to Jesus and enter into a love relationship with him by admitting that I'm a sinner, trusting him, and the, the work he did on the cross, and by faith, inviting him to take control of my life. Let's pray together.